we apply that with each other. As we go through each chapter, they're not standalone. They build on each other. And before we jump into Total Surrender today, we are going to go to Kahoot. And you can join us at kahoot.it. Pull out your device if you're at home. Maybe you're already logged on there. A code is appearing on the screen right now so that you can plug that in. And if you've been tracking with us, you know this is just a way for us to engage with you, to hear where you're at. Um, and today, what we're going to do with our Kahoot is to take a little bit of a review, sort of a check-in, to see where you're at now with some of the very first foundational belief statements that we touched on back in the fall. So we're actually going all the way back to the beginning. And the reason why we're going back to these first statements is because what we're talking about today really hinges strongly on these core beliefs. Maybe you were tracking with us back then, or maybe you hadn't jumped in yet, and some of these might look new to you, but these are the first um, chapters of the book. I can see lots of people signing on there with all of your creative, funny names, so it's all anonymous. You can be completely completely honest in your answers. All right, we are just about ready to jump in with our first question, or our first statement, actually. We're going to respond to this statement. It might sound familiar from chapter one. Here it is, three, two, one. I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here are your options. With thread, you can say, I agree with this statement. Pretty simple. The blue says, I'm growing in agreement with this statement as we go through believe. Maybe you've been journeying for a little while. The yellow circle says, I struggle to agree with this statement. And the green one, I missed that part of the Believe series, but I hope to go back and catch up. And maybe just being honest, I'm new to this. I'm not sure what you're talking about. I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take a moment, click on the color, the shape that you agree with the most, that most reflects what you believe. Now, at the very start, when we got into Believe, people had an option to memorize these statements. Maybe some of you have been doing that. Now, here are our results. 70, 100% of our respondents today agree with that statement. All right, we're off to a great start in that we agree on this first foundational statement. We'll jump on to the next one. Our second statement says, I believe God is involved in and cares about my daily life. I believe that God is involved in and cares about my daily life. And the answers are the same as the last time. I agree with this statement, the triangle, the diamond. I'm growing in agreement with this statement as we go through believe. The circle, I struggle to agree with this statement. And the square, I missed that part, and I maybe I'll catch up later. And just to tell you, this one, as a body at Hillcrest, when we first polled ourselves at the start, this was actually one of our lowest ones. So I'm curious as we're halfway through where we're at. Take a moment, choose your answer. We're excited. We know that there's only 30 people in the room here, so we know we've got quite a few more that are clicking in from home. All right, are we ready? Here it comes. I'm saying that in faith. Here we go. 96% of those who responded agreed with that statement. There was 3% that said, I'm growing in my agreement with that statement. That's great. And 1% that said, I really struggle to believe that. Thank you for your honesty. All right, the third one. I believe a person comes into a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
I believe a person comes into a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you say, I agree with that statement? I'm growing in agreement with this statement as we go through believe. I struggle to agree with this statement. I miss that part of believe. I'm hoping to catch up. How many times can you answer green squares, right? I don't think we've had any green squares yet. Nobody's being that honest. I believe a person comes into a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You ready? We clicked in at home. We're ready to see what do we believe. Let's see those results. 92% agreed with that statement. I think it's 8%, six respondents, 8% said, I'm growing in my understanding of that statement. All right, that's awesome. Isn't it great how as we learn more from his word, we can grow in our beliefs. It's not a understand it all right in one moment, but that we grow as we journey with him. Let's keep going. Number four, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God that guides my beliefs and actions. I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God that guides my beliefs and actions. Do you agree? Are you growing in agreement with that statement? Do you struggle to agree with that statement? Or do you say, I just, I haven't given it any thought. That could be the green square too, is I need to think about that. I should have put that one as an answer. All right, click in where you're at. We'll give a moment for those at home to click in as well. Do you know there's a little bit of a delay sometimes? So you might be sitting here in person and thinking, why haven't we moved on? It's because we're giving our chance to our our congregation at home to answer. Here we go. Here's our results. It looks like 85%, 85, am I reading that correctly? Agreed with this statement. 10% said, I'm growing as I believe this statement. 3% said, I really struggle with this. And here's our, some green squares. Thank you for your honesty. 3% said, I, I missed that part, or I need to go back and look at that. We need some more time to look at that one. Thank you. Okay, our final one. I believe I am significant because of my position as a child of God. Let me read that again. I believe I am significant because of my position as a child of God. This was the fifth core belief statement that we looked at back in the fall. So do you agree with that red triangle? Are you growing in agreement with that blue diamond? Do you struggle to agree with that statement? Yellow circle, green square, you missed that part. You want to catch up. Maybe that's got you interested. You're going to go back and read chapter number five to see what that's all about. Where are you at for our final question? All right. I know those results are coming in. We appreciate your patience and your consistency as you click from home. I know if my kids are in the room, they think this is an exciting part. They're not always there when we're doing our part. They're often doing their Sunday school in another room. Which, by the way, there is Sunday school programs for children online. Don't miss those if you have kids. Here we go. Our final answers. My eyes aren't that good. I'm sorry. I have to turn. 74% agreed with this statement. 17% said they're growing in agreement with their statement about their significance because their position in Christ. 8% struggled to agree with it. And 1% said, I missed that part of believe, but I hope to catch up. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for playing with us. We love hearing where you're at. And we're actually going to come back to these statements a little bit later this morning. 
So what does it mean to live a life of surrender to God? Let's jump right in with today's topic. So Henry just read to us from Daniel chapter 3 what might be a very familiar story to you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to just add a few comments to that story to fit it in context of where we're going today. But I'm not going to retell the whole thing. So the background. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men had been taken captives by the Babylonians and taken from their country when Judah was attacked and Jerusalem fell. It was the final. There there had been battles back and forth for some time. Finally, Jerusalem falls and a bunch of people are taken. Now, this was a very clever strategy by the enemy. The one way that enemies would eliminate the threat of those that they conquered was to either, I mean, sometimes they'd kill off royal families and that, so there's nobody for succession, but they would also carry off all of their elite, well-educated, royal, noble birth people. They would take them off to the foreign land that was conquering them and just leave behind enough common people to work the land, but not enough who are going to organize to rebel against them. So they can still have some produce or products from that place, but they're not threatened. So this is what happened. Then they took these elite, these royal birth nobles, and they educated them, they re-educated them into the conqueror's ways of operating so that it would benefit their own country. So it was kind of like they were gathering all the best students, all the best, the brightest minds, all the best looking ones. It actually says that. They just wanted them all to come and benefit their empire. So these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, who the book is named for, um, and we hear much more about him than we do about the friends, they were in that lot. They were young, they were smart, they were scooped up planted back down in Babylon, which was a long ways away, and it was a foreign language, foreign culture, and very foreign pagan gods. So before the fiery furnace story happens, which is only chapter three of Daniel, what do we know of them in the first two chapters? Well, we know that they're strong, they're healthy, they're good-looking, they're a noble birth, they have everything, you know, um, to their favor up until that point, they're well-educated, and it says King Nebuchadnezzar wanted those who were well-educated with knowledge and good judgment, and they fell into that category. They were suited to serve at the royal palace. And suddenly they're launched into Babylonian Studies 101. They learn everything about Babylonian history and culture, and they're being set up for positions of authority. We also know that their names have been changed, I'm sure much to their own horror, because their names, their Hebrew names, were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which would have been very godly Hebrew names. And then they're changed to these despicable pagan names, which we end up knowing them by, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, interestingly enough, we still he seems to hang on to his Hebrew name, even though he was given Belteshazzar was his, his Babylonian name. So they follow, they stick close with Daniel, who seems to be the leader in the group here, and they follow his lead when they're asked, when they first get there, and they're asked to eat the king's food, which has been offered to idols. Now, every good, God-fearing Israelite guy knows you're not allowed to do that. That food has been offered to an idol. And instead of just laying low and going under the radar and fitting in and not being noticed, they follow Daniel's lead when Daniel says, "Mm, we don't want to do that. We want a different plan. And they end up making arrangements to have this very simple vegetarian, just vegetables and water diet, and they look stronger and and everything than, than their counterparts. And so they've already made a few little waves, but they've already stood up for what they believed. 
In Daniel 1.17, it says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. God's hand was on them. And these three and Daniel impressed King Nebuchadnezzar more than any of the others. They stood out after their training was complete, and so they're put into royal service. Now, we also know, when I went back and I read this, I thought, I never think about this part, but this is, a, this is an important part. Um, Pastor Laura will like this part. We know from Daniel, too, that these men were men of prayer. When, king, when the king has a dream, nobody can, can decipher it and tell him what it means. He threatens to kill all the wise men, which would have included Daniel and his friends. Daniel goes home to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and urges them to pray that God will give him the solution, and God does. So when the king honors Daniel after he interprets this dream, Daniel in turn requests that these three friends that are um, his sidekicks here also be put in charge of the affairs of Babylon. So by the time we catch up with them in chapter 3, some time has passed. They already have important positions over all of Babylon and are also known for their worship of a god that is unknown to the Babylonians. Now, it's important to understand that the Babylonians had many gods. Israel was surrounded by nations who worshipped many, many gods. So it's not a big deal to them at this point that they have a different god. Oh, well, everybody has their own gods. Every area has their own gods. You just keep adding them together, more together. There was a difference, though. So why is this all important? Well, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about where they were going and what had happened before this, because when we read the story of the fiery furnace, we can read it in a way that assumes that this is the only one big test that they face and they shine. They do the right thing. It's dramatic and exciting. And there you go. But if we don't realize what had happened before, then we don't also realize what was at stake for them. They were not faceless Hebrew slaves. They were important government officials. Nebuchadnezzar knew them by name. He didn't have to ask who these guys were. They were in charge of Babylon. They were important. Maybe that's why he gave them a second chance and said, one more time, let's play that music again and we'll give them one more chance because he was going to lose something if he kills these guys. So how much pressure would they have been under to conform because of their positions of authority? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't come to this one huge issue and suddenly have to make a dramatic decision. Long before, long before this had happened, they had already chosen to stay surrendered to their God, despite being taken captive in a place where idols were all around them. They made decisions along the way that honored God, and they refused to compromise. They were all in long before they were thrown into the fire. So total surrender to God does not happen in total isolation from the world and from those who refuse to surrender to him. It was not a snap decision. Well, sounds like we should do it. Should we do it? Should we do it? I don't know. This one sounds too hard. Their hearts were already surrendered to God. This was a no-brainer. We can't serve another God. That decision had been made long before. Someone wrote, and I don't know who to attribute it to, when you live your life by principles, most of your decisions are made before you encounter them. And I think it applies as well. When you live your life surrendered to God, most of your decisions are made before you encounter them because you've already tackled the biggest question. Am I going to live a life of surrender? They had already done this. They were in it together. They stuck together. They stuck with Daniel. He wasn't there in that picture. 
they didn't defend themselves. That stood out to us in our, when our staff devotions this week when we were reading this passage. They were not in outrage and defiance against the king. This is unjust. You should tear the statue down. This isn't fair to the Hebrew people. No, they just said, we don't have to defend ourselves, but we're not changing our minds. Whether you change yours or not, this is what we will do. And our God can save us, and he will, but even if he doesn't, their obedience and surrender was not dependent on them knowing the outcome of the story. One of the phrases that has helped me so much in the area of um, loving our neighbors and, and, and um, blessing people and sharing the gospel with them is understanding that obedience is success. Leave the outcomes and the results up to him. If we listen, if we respond, if we obey, we can just repeat. That's success. We obeyed. We were successful. They were being obedient. The outcome was not what mattered in this sense. They just were being obedient, and their obedience was sufficient. And just one last note on the story, and then we'll move on. Do you notice the difference between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's reaction to what God does in saving them and Nebuchadnezzar's? At the end of the fiery furnace story, Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. The other officials, they are amazed that at this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar even says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is not surrendering to God. He isn't. He's just saying, of all the gods that we have, here's another one who's mighty, and he's their God. This is amazing. Nebuchadnezzar's Surrender to God did not come till years later after utter humiliation and being taken out of his position of power. When God lowered him and humiliated him because he was stubborn and wouldn't surrender, we can stand in awe and amazement at what God does and not be surrendered to him. We can just think it's amazing. Wow, isn't that amazing? I'm going to go do my own thing now. I'm going to hoard for myself my selfish desires and plans and agendas. That's amazing, God. That is amazing. You're amazing. We've acknowledged it, but we haven't surrendered ourselves to him. And that is the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's our cautionary tale. All right. Our key question today is, how do I cultivate a life of sacrificial service? What does God's word tell us about this area? Very briefly, the concept of surrender I couldn't get it out of my head when I first started reading through these things a few weeks ago and thinking about this. Surrender implies there has been a struggle. If you have boys, little boys in your house, you know this. There's a struggle that leads to surrender. Somebody gives up. The actual definition for surrender is to cease resistance to an enemy or opponent and submit to their authority. It includes yield, submit, laying down of arms. To surrender is the opposite of to resist. And historians tell us that, that the, the idea of waving a white flag and surrender, that that actually dates back even maybe even 100 years before Christ. And it was communicating, okay, you win, we give up. Or maybe it at least communicated, let's stop so we can talk. That idea of surrender, it brings this idea of a ba- the battle comes to a halt. It ends conflict. It causes one to give up the struggle. But when we think about it that way, at least to me, it sounds very negative, doesn't it? You had to give up. You fought and you lost. You lost. It's the loser's language, isn't it? We're conditioned. You never give up. The hero never surrenders. We can hear this in a win-lose context, but you have to hear this through the filter of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. When we surrender 
when the, in the kingdom of God, we win. We actually are set free. We're set free from being captive, not taken captive. And that's where the language is different. Total surrender is not the same as commitment. There's an author, Connie Kavanagh, and she writes this book, From Faking It to Finding Grace, and she says this, Commitment means I am still in control, whereas surrender takes me out of the driver's seat. Commitment is deciding on a plan. Surrender is going to God for his plan. Oh, that's so much harder, isn't it? There is a high cost to living a life of surrender. And the Bible is full of stories of people who lived a life of surrender. But so is modern history, actually. And one of my favorite authors is a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Maybe you're familiar with her story. She was born in Belgium to missionary parents. And Elizabeth was raised with a heart for God and his purposes. And later she moved to the United States and she studied to become a missionary at Wheaton College where she met Jim Elliot. Maybe you're more familiar with his name. Um, He became her first husband, and he is best remembered as one of the five American missionaries who were killed by a fierce tribe in Ecuador, the Aucas. They're now known as the Huarani people, and he was murdered in 1956 with four others. Now, after that happened, together with her young daughter, newly widowed Elizabeth, who was 30 years old, chose to forgive and to face her fears, living for two years among the very people who had killed her husband. She was joined by Rachel Saint, who was a sister to Nate Saint, the pilot who had also been murdered in that group. As a result of these women, many of the people from this remote village came to understand the love of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. It's an incredible story of total surrender amidst heartache and struggle and loss, but... If you know Jim Elliott's story, if you know Elizabeth Elliott's story, you know that their surrender did not begin in the moment that those people attacked with spears. Her surrender did not begin the moment her her husband was killed. Many, many acts of surrender, a lifetime of surrender, led them there. In one of her books about her life with Jim Elliott, Elizabeth writes, it's called The Shadow of the Almighty. She writes a few things that Huge impact when you understand the context of her story. One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would agree with her on that one. Here's the thing, though. No one in their right mind would totally surrender unless they fully believed in those first five core beliefs that we just went through in cahoots. That's why we went through them this morning. Because if you don't believe those things, if you're not growing in your belief, at least in those things, the idea of total surrender, it's not even an option. Why would you go there? It would be foolish of you. But if I believe The God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if I believe that God is involved in and cares about my daily life, and if I believe that a person comes into a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and if I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that God guides my beliefs and actions by it, And if I believe that I am significant because of my position as a child of God, then it stands to reason that I dedicate my life to God's purposes. In fact, 
If that's the case, it's a no-lose situation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God can save us. He's capable of doing it. We believe he will do it. But even if he doesn't, he will deliver us from you. Even if they died in the fire, they knew they would be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. It's a no-lose situation. If you are struggling to surrender, or should I say when we struggle to surrender, because it's a struggle, right? It's giving up. The struggle has happened. Then you surrender. I suggest you go back, revisit chapters one through five in Believe, or revisit the chapter that stood out to you as we went through the cahoots and you went, no, no, not this one. Go back and read it. Ask the Lord to show you, am I believing a lie in one of these areas? What's the lie that I've believed in this area? Have I believed a lie that you don't care about my daily life and you're not involved in my life? We can confess that, repent of it, and we can receive the truth that he has given us in his word to walk out these beliefs. Paul in Romans 12.1, this is our key verse for this chapter. He writes about this idea of a living sacrifice. So he's taking a picture from the Old Testament that would be very understandable in his context, and he's adding a twist to it because living sacrifices didn't exist. He says this in Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. Randy Frazee, who's the author that um, has compiled Believe Together in the story, he writes, we are only able to strive for total surrender in our lives through God's wonderful gift of grace. This does not mean that we give up our lives to him out of some obligation or debt in trade for redemption, nor does it mean giving up control because he has overpowered us. That's like the little boys wrestling in the living room. Rather, we fully surrender to him out of total desperation and realization for the need of a savior. A living sacrifice. Hmm. The Old Testament sacrifice, an animal was brought who was spotless and perfect, and it was put on the altar. It was killed and given as a sacrifice to God. Once the animal was on the altar, you couldn't take it back. You can't bring your spotless lamb, get it up there, and then say, oh, it's way too cute. I think I'm going to bring that one home. No, 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 bring it down, bring it down. Nope. Once it was on the altar, it wasn't yours anymore. It was God's. It was already given as a sacrifice. But this idea of a living sacrifice, sacrifices were given in atonement to pay the price for sin because a perfect sacrifice couldn't be given. A person wasn't perfect until Jesus came to give the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. So they had to keep doing this. But this idea of a living sacrifice is not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time deal. You can't just take an animal, put it on the altar, there you go, you're done. It's an ongoing process. It's dynamic and organic. It's constantly changing. It's alive. A constant sacrifice. That's what Paul's talking about. Continual sacrifice. Remember what Elizabeth Elliot wrote? That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. This is a lifetime's work, surrendering to God. It's not a one-moment event. We will do this every day for the rest of our lives. Not because he didn't hear us the first time, but because our own hearts tend to wander. What Paul is doing here is he is saying, in view of God's mercy, in view of what I've just written to you in the first 11 chapters of Romans, which talks about the condition you are in and I am in and the solution that was provided in Christ, this 
is the way of life. In view of all this, it would only seem reasonable that you would offer your life as a living sacrifice. We need to get the order right in this. God was all in first. He's not asking us to be all in before he's all in. Oh, just tell me you're all in. Once you prove it to me, then I'll be all in with you. No, he was all in first. He loved us and acted first. Our decision to be all in is a response to what he's already accomplished. Read Romans. If you read Romans with a highlighter, you're just going to highlight the entire book. Really, there's going to be very left, maybe some ands and buts or whatever. No, we mark those two because those are important. It'll just be solid. The first 11 chapters deal with that need for mercy and God's gracious provision of mercy through Jesus. Paul argues that we are compelled to give our lives to him from love, not duty, for worship, not works. What do those first 11 chapters say? Well, I can't read them all to you, but here's a few things, and you might, some of this might sound familiar, and you just never realize this is what was in that section. His kindness is intended to turn us from sin. Obeying, not just listening, makes us right with him. We are declared righteous through Christ without working for it. God gives us the free gift of faith. Faith brings peace, undeserved privilege. He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love at just the right time. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The power of sin has been broken through Christ. We are made alive in Christ. God's grace brings freedom. We have been released from the power of the law of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Overwhelming victory is ours in Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. His grace is free and undeserved. It is for everyone. That's all in Romans. It's like a feast for us. Last week, I laid on my couch and I turned the audio Bible on and I just listened to the first 11 chapters. You will get up with new purpose, with new energy. Do it. It's amazing. I want you to listen to that key verse one more time, but I want, you, I want to read it to you from the message because it's a very practical how-to kind of um, reading of it. So Romans 1 and 2 from the message. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize that he, what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. We are to sacrifice the influence of today's culture in our lives so that we will be mature believers. We're to sacrifice our embrace of the world so that we might receive what he has done for us. We're to sacrifice what we think is a priority with our jobs, our families, the things that we, that we do and show and that we do to show love and grace. We have to sacrifice those things over fixing our eyes on God. It's not easy. Our culture woos us, distracts us, can fill every minute of our thought and day. But we must totally dedicate our lives to God's purpose. Can you imagine what would happen if we did? 
The story of the Bible is the repeated story of God drawing his people back into relationship with him over and over and over again. I've been reading lots in the Old Testament lately, and boy, it's over and over and over again. They repeat so much because they fall away. They get distracted. He pulls them back from serving many gods into serving himself alone. But don't think, we can arrogantly think that because we're not physically bowing down to little statues of gods, that our hearts are not nearly as fickle as theirs. It just looks different. Our hearts are still as fickle as theirs. And aren't you glad that in addition to the examples of surrender that we're given in the Bible, we're also given examples of very human failures when they did not surrender, but God in his mercy restored them? Just last week, Peter walks on the water, but then he gets distracted and he starts to sink. Jesus doesn't let him drown. He pulls him up. Later, Peter denies Christ, the ultimate betrayal. After the resurrection, Jesus restores him and puts him in a position of leadership even. David, a man after God's own heart. Adultery? Arranging murder? Really? He's restored. Failure isn't final when we're surrendering to God. Isn't that amazing? So how do I cultivate a life of sacrificial service? I dedicate my life to God's purpose. Maybe there's a little exercise that will help you. Think about this as a daily act of surrender, regular acts of love and obedience in response to what he's done for us. This is not about isolated events or self-directed humanitarian efforts. Daily, open your hands, surrender what you have, lay down what's stopping you, what's keeping you back, what's distracting you, lay it down, and then lift up your hands as you give control to him and authority to him. When we teach kids about worshiping God and we explain why sometimes we lift our hands in worship, one of the reasons is it's a sign of surrender. I, I give up. I'm not, I'm not busy with anything else. I'm just giving up to you. Lay down what's distracting you and surrender to him. One of the reasons why we have a very simple prayer that we pray at Hillcrest um, is because of this act of surrender, the fact that it's a lifelong journey of surrender. And we use this prayer, it can be the very first time somebody surrenders to Christ, but it can also be that daily act of surrender. And we pray like this, Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do you see how you could start a journey with that, but you could also journey every day with that? Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. In surrendering to God, we are offering our moments, our thoughts, our activities, and our lives. These are issues of our minds and hearts, surrendering what sits in the way, recognizing I have to take my hands off of this and follow you. Luke 9, 23 to 25 says this, Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit his very self? 
it's a good season to be reminded about this because maybe you're in a season right now and you're just like, oh, please give me one giant dramatic chance to surrender. I just want something dramatic and I'm stuck with the mundane, tedious, every day at home, the same thing over and over. How can this be important? It's the training ground for surrender. If we can surrender daily in the daily tedious mundane mundaneness of a global pandemic and restrictions and all the rest of it, if we can surrender then, maybe he's preparing us for surrendering. That is more dramatic. Maybe it'll never come to the dramatic fiery furnace moment in your life, but those small acts of surrender are tuning us in to him, are training our minds um, to be surrendered in any way that he desires. When the concept of surrender sounds scary, remember this. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, and he's delivered us from slavery to sin. He didn't deliver us to become a new slave master. He walks with us as a friend. He invites us into his work as part of the body of Christ. Jesus said, you are now my friends if you do what I command. You're not just servants. Servants don't know what their master's business is. But I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. We haven't been doing final songs at the end, but we're going to do one this morning. And I know this is the moment when usually uh, at my house right now, somebody is pointing out, isn't lunch ready yet? Five more minutes, kids. Okay, we're going to sing one song. And we're going to sing this song as an opportunity to surrender one more time. As they come, I want to tell you one short little story. I was reminded of a story of a little boy who climbs up and reaches his hand, his little chubby hand, into the cookie jar and grabs as many fistfuls of cookies as he can get his hand on and then realizes his hand won't come out of the jar. It's stuck. Comes to his mother in tears with the cookie jar on his hand. The mom, trying not to laugh, I'm sure, says, okay, sweetie, all you have to do is just open your hand and let go of the cookies. Then we'll get it out of the jar. No, I can't. Just bring a hammer and break the hand. I'll be strong. I won't even cry if I bleed. Just break the jar. Well, is the mother going to break the jar? Of course not. It's ridiculous. She knows. Just open your little chubby hand. Let go of the cookies. Let your hand come out. I'll take care of all the rest, okay? But stubbornly like the little boy we can only see we can't see past that handful of crunched cookie crumbs that are keeping him from being free from the jar we're going to take some moments now we're going to sing a song with the worship team and i want you to take an opportunity you don't have to sing you can listen ask the lord what is it that i need to surrender to you today is there something that you've put your finger on that i just need to take a moment and do it before i go on to the next thing a busyness of my life What surrender is he asking you to make today? Here's some words from the song so you don't miss it. Here's where I lay it down. Every burden, every crown, this is my surrender. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. Your way is better, Jesus. Would you, you, if you're here in person, stand with us. If you're at home, just hold off the kids for five minutes and join us in singing.